Good morning, everyone. Welcome to this morning's session. We're going to get started with Tea Party of the Damned with Dr. Gary Jay. I'm excited to introduce Dr. Jay this morning. He is Chief Medical Officer at Advise Clinical out of Raleigh, North Carolina. Everyone give Dr. Jay a warm welcome this morning. Thank you. I appreciate it. Good morning, everybody. And I think before we start, I'll try to explain the title. Uh, Deb Weiner and I each year express to each other, what would be an interesting title? And this was one of Deb's talks, so it's like, Gary, do one that says Tea Party of the Damned. So for those of you that have want to know what this is, this is about the migranous aura. And we're going to talk about a very specific type of migranous aura called the Alice in Wonderland syndrome, which I think you'll find is very interesting, very different. And the lecture has a lot of pictures, so you won't fall asleep. Nothing to disclose or learning objectives you can read. What are we talking about? What is the Tea Party of the Damned. Basically, I equate this in two ways. First is imagine being a person who has a neurological problem, but you never know when it's going to come. You never know what's going to happen. You never know how long it's going to happen for. And it may totally disrupt your life, or, as you'll see in, towards the end of the lecture, it may help you to develop something that you do that nobody else does. Specifically, I'm talking about art that we'll talk about and look at. And another way of looking at this is a cluster headache patient. Cluster headaches typically run exactly on the same time every day. And they are suicide headaches. These people will literally make their head bloody, hitting it against the wall to try to stop the pain of the cluster headache. And Imagine knowing you're going to get two or three at 4 o'clock, 8 o'clock, and midnight. And there's nothing you can do to stop it without drugs. So that's what we're wanting to talk about. Here's a tea party. And here are people with migraine. JFK, Washington, Albert Einstein, somebody that we're going to talk a lot about. Lewis Carroll, also known as Charles Dodson. Caesar, Elvis, and Van Gogh. And there's more. Elvis, Joan of Arc, Elizabeth Taylor, Napoleon Bonaparte, Thomas Jefferson, Ulysses S. Grant, Sigmund Freud had migraine, Alexander Graham Bell, Terrell Davis, to be more modern about it. So, epidemiologically, in general, migraine there's more than 30 million people with migraine headaches. If you look at patients with just tension-type headache, you're talking about around 40 million, and that includes those that have both migraine and tension-type. We're not talking here about the patients with um, medication overutilization headache, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Okay, So migraine accounts for 64% of the severe headaches in women, 43% of severe headaches in men. Okay, 18% of women have migraine, 6% of men in the United States. 
75% of all people with severe headaches, particularly migraine, are women. So, want to go over quickly the migraine classification. It has changed. Now, this is all taken after the IHS, the International Headache Society, um, second edition of diagnost diagnostics. There is a third beta, which I, have not, I am not using because, as I said, it's a beta. So it hasn't been appropriated yet. So we have migraine with aura, what we used to call common migraine. That's 80% of the migraineurs. These are folk that don't have an aura. Then they have this very silly thing called probably migraine without aura. Migraine with aura, which is what we used to call classical migraine. And the, again, another silliness, probably migraine with aura. Chronic migraine, chronic migraine associated with MOH or analgesic overutilization. Childhood periodic syndromes. There are two main ones, and we're just going to briefly, I'm just going to tell you what they are now. One is abdominal pain, episodic abdominal pain. It can last four to 72 hours. The key to fixing it, have the child go to bed and sleep if you can. The other is acute vertigo, lasting four to 72 hours. Complications of migraine, which we'll discuss, migraineous disorders not fulfilling the above criteria. So this is what it means to have migraine without aura. What's important is the first line, or one of the important things is, you can have two migraines, three migraines, but you're not really a migrainer until you've had five. Okay? The headache lasts four to 72 hours. Okay? If it lasts longer than 72 hours, you may get into something more significant called... Um, status migranosis. This is a problem that typically needs hospitalization. We'll talk about that. These headaches, you need to have two or more of the following. Unilateral location. Now, when I was in, train, in training, one of the docs said, if it's not unilateral, it can't be a migraine. Okay. However, the fact of the matter is, and we used to think that in the first, prior to uh, puberty, that more, there was one little boy for every little girl with migraine. And what we now know is there's a predominance of little boys with migraine. Okay? Not women or not little girls. Okay? And a third or more of those patients have bilateral migraine. And when they reach puberty, one-third of that third will grow, will lose their headaches. The second third will develop unilateral throbbing headaches, and the last third will remain and continue as an adult with bilateral throbbing migraineous headaches. Okay. Pulsating quality, always there. Moderate to severe pain. And here is the issue, and here's your diagnostic, best diagnostic criteria. Moderate or any type of physical activity, particularly walking, climbing upstairs, will make the headache far worse. So that's why these people stay typically in a dark room because the next is headache has photophobia and phonophobia, which is what? Sight, okay, and hearing, sound can hurt. They can have uh, nausea and vomiting. So actually the FDA criteria, 
for a new, for any type of migraine drug is within two hours of taking that drug, the pain's gone, there's no more photophobia, phonophobia, or light, or excuse me, nausea or vomiting. Okay? Now, important, not attributed to another disorder. The diagnosis of probable migraine without aura means that you see one, two, three, four, and number five, not attributed. So you take away number three. So you have a patient who may or may not have had five attacks, who has headaches lasting for four to 72 hours, but doesn't have any of the throbbing criteria or any of the other criteria, and that's how they're describing probable migraine. This, to me, is um, silly. All right, IHS criteria for migraine with aura. Now, many people, and you're going to see pictures, um, look at migraineous aura typically as visual. And it is typically visual, but very few people know it can be non-visual. It can be paresthesias or pain, extracephalgic pain. It can be difficulty with speech. But each aura lasts between five minutes and no longer than 60 minutes. And what's also very important is you can have multiple auras that come one after the other. I've had patients with three. That takes three hours before the headache starts, typically. Or four, one patient I had with four auras. So you want to realize that it's not necessarily one aura. Well, that's complicated migraine, which is typically a neurocomplication, and we'll talk about it. Okay? Chronic migraine. What's important here is um, if you look at the, at the title or the diagnosis, chronic migraine is tension-type headache or migraine. And 15 headache days a month or more. Now, do any of you have any patients that would have headaches for 15 days or more a month and not take any medication? Not take an aspirin, not take a Tylenol, nothing. I don't. I mean, I've been doing this 36 years. Okay, so MOH is almost always associated with this. Now, the new appendix criteria, which came two years after the IHS criteria, is the headache 15 days or more a month. Headache occurs in a patient who's had at least five migraines. Uh, headaches, okay, so that they are a, quote, real migrainer. And eight or more days a month, the headache should be migrainous. And the other 20-odd days, it can be tension type. But what happens is you have migraine, tension type headache, analgesic rebound, and vasoconstrictor rebound. MOH is medication overutilization headache. What's important about that is how long does it take to develop analgesic, or excuse, analgesic rebound or vasoconstrictor rebound? And the answer is Bigal did an excellent study, which is here, and he found that while the IHS said 10 days for, all, for everything, what he found was for men, okay, opiates, eight days a month will create MOH. For women, taking butalbital, infurinol, 
five days a month will create analgesic rebound. Okay? So this is serious, and this is something you want to control. And furanol, of course, we were all brought up, oh, furanol, it's nothing. You know, it's like tramadol, it's nothing. Triptans, 10 days a month. NSAIDs, or simple analgesics, typically 10 to 14 days a month. Okay, now, the new appendix criteria, no change except they say 10 days for everything. So, probable migraine, as I told you, you take out all the migraineous aspects, and it's still probably migraine. I don't know how you could make that diagnosis. So here's some migraine art that I promised you. These, these came from a Novartis seminar where they asked patients with migraine to draw a picture of their headache. And it's really something fascinating to do. I do it in my clinic, is draw a picture of your headache. Some, not everybody is this able. Another one. Glaxo. This was from after, actually, some triptan. This was on Pinterest. Now, here's the scintillating scotomas, and I'm hoping that we're going to be able to see it. Here you can see, this is a German gentleman. You can see how the zigzag lines, called fortification spectra, start small and grow larger. This is what some migraineurs see. Visual snow totally obliterates the visual field, and a lot of people feel that this is something entirely different than a pure scotoma, as we're looking at a scintillating scotoma. And you can see one here. So migraine variants. Let's talk about different type of migraine headaches. The one everybody wants to have is acephalgic migraine. Why? Because acephalgic migraine is an aura typically a visual aura, lasting between 5 minutes and 60 minutes, with no headache. So, the first or second time, by the way, how many folks here are, what type of docs? How many people here are neurologists? Okay, two, three. How many people are primary care? Okay, nurse practitioners or mid-levels, super. Okay, now the big question, how many people in this room have migraine? Okay, so this is important because many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. So, the first time you get a call from about a patient who has a visual symptom that they never had before, and we'll talk about the types of visual symptoms in a moment, there can be positive or negative scotomas. Okay, negative means it's dark. Positive means that it's bright flashing light. Or you can have fortification spectra, which are zigzaggedy lines. Okay? They're called fortification spectra because that's what an old fort 
used to look like. Hemiplegic migraine is just what you'd expect. It is genetically appropriate. It's purely genetics. And you see these folks in one family. Actually, I think there's three families that have been studied. Basler migraine or Bickerstaff's migraine is very interesting because it's the only type of migraine that does several things. It causes it's secondary to vasoconstriction of the vertebral basilar artery in the back of the brain, and patients will get ataxia. And it's the only type of headache ever associated with syncope. These patients will pass out. Then when they wake up, they'll have a headache. Childhood periodic syndromes, we talked about retinal migraine. Retinal migraine is a problem because what happens, you can lose the vision in an eye. So when you get a call at 3 o'clock in the morning and the ER doc says, I got one of your patients here, they lost their vision in the left eye. Oh, my God. Do you run to the hospital and do a full court press or do you ask one question first that will give you the possibility of saying, have them come to my office tomorrow and I'll look at them. And that question is, how long did it take for that eye to go blind? If it was an amaurosis fugax or a TIA, be immediate. If it was a migranous aura, it's four to six minutes. So that one question can save you a lot of time and effort. Ophthalmoplegic migraine, we used to think, was only in children. And we used to think it was a migraine-type aura or something that would happen physiologically prior to that hour, prior to the migraine. And then we found out we were totally all wet. Basically, it can occur in kids and it can occur in adults. It can occur 6 to 12 weeks after a migraine. It is extremely painful, and you have no idea how long it's going to last. And what happens with ophthalmoplegic migraine is the third, fourth, and sixth cranial nerves, which control the eye movements with the musculature, stop working. So the eye is pointed out here, and there's nothing you or the patient can do to change it. Complicated migraine. This is what this gentleman over here asked about. Okay. Here's a story. Uh, when I first started practice, too many years ago. My first nurse, Laura, lovely young lady, but she smoked like a chimney, took estrogenic birth control pills, because back in 1980, didn't have progesterone pills, and she had migraine with aura. Okay, do I have to say any more? What happened was, I get a call one night from my nurse saying, you know, Gary, I can't see out of the left side of my eyes. So I saw her in the emergency room, and she stroked out the left side of her vision. She developed a homonymous hemianopia. It never returned. That's a complicated migraine. Okay? You can have stroke. You can have other types of problems which occur like that. Anything that lasts longer than 60 minutes is neurological and considered complicated migraine. Migralepsy. Migralepsy involves a patient having a grand mal seizure during that first hour or even into the second hour. It may be the first time they have a seizure. 
And either way, you have to do a full court press to make sure that there's nothing else going in there. Because what is the differential diagnosis of seizure in the adults? It's not migraine. It's tumor, tumor, and tumor. Okay? So you've got to rule out tumor. Acute confusional migraine. We used to call this transient global amnesia. And we used to say this was secondary to bilateral temporal lobe seizures. Okay? When I was in training, again, going back a long time, I had a patient who had what we called transient global amnesia. It wasn't acute confusional migraine at the time. This gentleman drove from Chicago to, here we are in Lost Wages, Nevada. He drove here. Okay? And he proceeded to lose everything. Lost his house. Lost every penny he had. And then he drove home, stopped to get gas, and then woke up. Became cognizant as to where he was. What had happened was transient global amnesia. He acted and did everything perfectly normally. You would not know that he was not 110% perfectly normal. But he wasn't. He was undergoing this transient global amnesia. He was acting appropriate, but had no memory of what happened. He was seen in the clinic. I saw him about two days later. And we tried to, you know, and did get some things back when we could prove that there was something neurological going on. But the problem was they showed tapes, you know, because they tape everything in a casino. And there he is, gambling away, and he looks perfectly normal. He acts perfectly normal. But he wasn't. He wasn't aware, consciously, of what he was doing. Vertiginous migraine is interesting. 70% of migraineurs had vertigo. Some migraineurs, particularly in the pediatric group I was telling you about, will have four hours to 72 hours of severe vertigo. They can't get out of bed. So migraine with aura. As you see here, we have cortical activation and brainstem activation. And this is the initial blush. With cortical activation, you get what? You get pain. Sensory, cognitive, and motor symptoms. That's your aura. Visual symptoms, your visual aura. From the brain stem, you can get pain. But what else? The area postrema is going to give you nausea and vomiting. And you also can get vestibular symptoms. So how does this all come across? This is the definition of migraine with aura. And as you can see, under B, fully reversible visual symptoms or fully reversible sensory symptoms, including paresthesias, negative features such as numbness, or fully reversible dysphasic speech disturbance. Now, in probable migraine with aura, you can take B away, and they still have probable migraine with aura. But, again, as I told you, they can have all three of those auras in a row before they get their headache. So, what makes migraine with aura important and different is there are different patterns of inheritance, okay? Different occurrence relative to the menstrual cycle. And a higher incidence of allodynia in patients with aura. Now, let's talk just for a moment about allodynia. Uh, Rami Burstein did wonderful work on this. When we first started using triptans, there was 7 to 10% of patients that triptans would not work in. And everybody 
shrugged their head, scratched their head, and said, I don't know why. Okay, and nobody did know why until about a decade, 15 years ago. Remember, the first triptan was in the 80s. Okay, sumatriptan. So, what we found out was you can develop within the first half hour of a migraine central sensitization. And in the process of central sensitization, you can have pain cephalgically. If you, anybody that has a migraine and tries to run a comb through their hair, does that hurt? Typically it does. But you can also have extracephalgic pain in the hand, in the back muscle, or in the chest muscle. Okay? So the way we learned what to do about these patients was we figured out, gee, there must be something else going on here, and we realized this was allodynia, and we'd give naproxen sodium or whatever your favorite NSAID is, and then one hour later, you'll give a triptan, and it'll go away. The folks at Posen who did Trexamet we're not happy when everybody said, let's see, we can get a Trexamet tablet for $45 or we can get uh, uh, generic naproxen sodium and generic sumatriptan, you know, all for $5. But the bottom line is that's how you have to deal with the allodynia. And said, first, wait an hour, a triptan. And by the way, anybody know the proper way of, you should all know, I'm sure you do, the proper way of using a triptan your patients? The answer to that question is this. You use a triptan as soon as the patient says, oh, I'm getting a migraine. I'll take my triptan. Okay, and then at two hours, they're fine. But you know what? You need to have another triptan then. Because what happens is that's what prevents recurrence within 24 hours. So, migraine with aura patients have greater occurrence of cardiovascular disease in women. And more and more is being written about this now. Stroke, patent for Amino Valley. We thought for a while that, gee, if there was a PFO there, we could close it and it would stop the migraine while well, we've done enough surgeries and it doesn't work. Depression, anxiety, panic, suicidal ideation are all associated with migraine with aura. But, and this is something to remember, because this is why we never use the words always and never in medicine. Migraine patients with aura don't always have to have an aura. Okay, sometimes they'll have non-aura. Common migraine patients who never have auras can sometimes get an aura. And believe you me, first time that happens after 12, 20 years of having migraine without aura, they get an aura, and they go ballistic because they're scared out of their heads. What's going on? So the migraine has five different parts. The first one is called the prodrome, which occurs for 24 hours prior to an aura or the migraine. The problem is the patient doesn't realize what's going on, and unless you, the physician, or mid-level, asks the patient specifically you won't know that they have a prodrome. Yet, up to 70% of migraine patients develop a prodrome 
the day prior to their headache. Prodrome can include things like euphoria, depression, hyperhyposexuality, um, eating a lot, not eating at all. Okay? All sorts of things, all autonomic in nature, except for some people get cognitive changes, get a little slow. Okay? So then your aura, and we've talked about that. So let's talk about the pathophysiology of the migranous aura. It's another picture of an aura. 20% of migraineurs, those that don't have, are not in the 80% of uh, common migraine, 20% typically have aura. And as we talked about, the aura is most commonly visual, but it can be sensual. It can be sensory or it can be speech problems. Now, what's interesting is scotoma. There are two types of scotoma. A positive scotoma, which is bright flashing lights, and they always start lower left and go up to the right and out. Or you can have a negative scotoma where it's dark and it still does that. And we know that it moves at four millimeters a minute with a range of two to six millimeters a minute in the cortex. Okay? Now, a PET study, a PET scan study, showed that this was associated with a spreading bilateral oligemia, which means what? Decreased oxygen in the brain. Many of us were brought up in school to think that when migraine started, the patient had vasodilatation because that's what caused the throbbing pain. But in fact, it's just the opposite. Migraines begin during periods of oligemia when they do not have vasodilatation. They have vasoconstriction. Here is Hajikani's work. You can see a picture, a very nice picture, because that's where migraine aura typically starts visually. But what Hajikani said was, no, it's not the blood vessels. It's actually neuronal changes okay, that are causing the aura. And what we look at now and what we realize appears to exist, and I'll tell you why I say appears in a moment, and that is cortical spreading depression, described first in 1945 by Dr. Liao. Uh, cortical spreading depression is just what it sounds like, starting in the back of the brain and going through the posterior circulation, the middle circulation. It doesn't matter. And it's sort of like having a, um, a neuropathy, okay, where how many, if it's from here down, how many different dermatomes are affected? And why aren't they affected up here? Okay, and it's the same thing with the vascular systems in the brain. It's irrelevant in patients with this problem. So here's a picture, and if I can get this to work. All right, it starts with primary afferent neurons. Okay, it feeds into the trigeminal nucleus. What we know of today as the migraine generator is the trigeminal nucleus caudalis. Okay? You won't get tested on that. But that's here in the trigeminal nerve. There it is. And at the same time, superior salivatory nucleus will give you autonomic 
information. But what happens to cause the pain is second-order neurons go to the blood vessels in the meninges, in the dura mater. And what happens is they start spitting out algetic or pain-inducing chemicals. At the same time, the blood vessel in the dura mater becomes dilated and the blood-brain barrier is breached and pain-inducing chemicals leach out. So you have, in effect, a sterile inflammation in the area of the meninges. Okay, and that's causing the pain. But it's all starting down at the nucleus caudalis. Now, how do we know all this stuff, and why do we care? Because when Peter Goadsby did his fantastic work in developing rhizotriptan for Merck, he did the studies that showed us how does a triptan work? A triptan is what? It's 5-HT, 1, B, D, and F agonist. What does it do? It does three things. It causes vasoconstriction, shuts down the pain-inducing chemicals being leached from an enlarged blood vessel. It stops that second-order neuron from firing inappropriately and spitting out pain-inducing chemicals. And the third thing it does is it calms down the trigeminal nucleus caudalis. So we know that it does those three things. We know that by doing that, the migraine stops. And so we've been operating for decades under the thought that this is what the pathophysiology is of migraine. However, I'm going to throw you a monkey wrench here. We're not even going to do that. Cortical spreading depression. If this was real in humans, and we do believe it is, however, there's a, a codicil to that. Classic EEG findings of cortical spreading depression have never been seen in humans. Most patients should get significant, profound neurological deficits in the face of cortical spreading depression. They don't. So the question is, does migraine involve, in humans, migraine in humans involve cortical waves that are related to but not the same as those seen in animals? Are they different types? You can create a migraine in two ways in an animal. Take off the skull, take off the meninges, drop potassium and you'll see spreading cortical depression. Or you can do electrical stimulation of the sagittal sinus. So, vascular events in cortical arterioles. This is a lovely picture. This is occurring, you see, 32, 42, and 54 seconds. And it's essentially running ahead of the cortical spreading depression. And let's go on this side. You can see the size of the blood vessel getting bigger over that 22-second period of time. So you really do get vasodilatation. There's a picture of it. The propensity of cortical spreading depression is genetic, affects the gender, and hormones. Unfortunately, the luck of the draw is not positive for women because it's the ovarian hormones, female mice, 
transgenic type issues in animals. So here we are at the end of the migraine saying, we've got this filled out because we know now, and I'm going to show you a picture, of hypothalamic activation. We have cortical activation, language symptoms, sensory symptoms, visual symptoms. Hypothalamic activation, motor, yawning, polyuria, fatigue, cognitive dysfunction, and brainstem activation, nausea, headache, dizziness, and vertigo. Okay, this we went through. Now, here's a picture of the base of a of brain, migraine. And you notice, this is a functionally based migraine, functional MRI, that the raphe nuclei, the nucleus raphe magnus, which is serotonergic, the locus ceruleus, which is noradrenergic, and the periaqueductal gray all light up. Periaqueductal gray is the home, of course, of the endogenous opiates. Now, I've been showing this picture for years. This is a highlighted hypothalamus. The hypothalamus appears to not only be activated, but new literature within the last six months is talking about a hypothalamic net that somehow may be the real cause of migraine versus the trigeminal nucleus caudalis. So bottom line is you heard it first here. What it means, where it's going to go, don't have a clue. Harold Wolf, who in, discovered the ergots and is one of the giants in headache work, here's some of his very interesting work. This, looks like, this is a migraine. You can see stimulation. Migraine-type picture. This is tension-type picture, one half head, and just pain behind the ear over here. All right, some more migraine aura pictures, only you're going to know the names. Okay, this is, from, this is not a name you'd know. From the textbook of ophthalmology in 1845. But here's a name you should know. Joseph Jules Francois Felix Babinski. Okay, he had migraine, and they shrunk this. This was a whole slide. <laughs> I'm sorry, but these are Babinski's scotomas. Oh, they really did shrink this. Charcot. This is Charcot's scotoma. Gowers. This is actually in color. And you all know Gowers' name. Here's an interesting picture. You see a active, a white. So this is a positive scotoma. Then you see a negative scotoma building taking over that whole side of the vision, right side, and then relieving itself within 20 minutes or so. This is not uncommon. My patients describe this type of stuff a lot. Starts with a little bubble, gets bigger, breaks apart, and then you have the fortification spectra, the zigzaggedy lines. This, again, was a whole slide. This is mosaic vision. In other words, this looks like somebody took a picture, cut it up, and then just sort of tried to fit it together. And that's important because of what we're going to show you in a little bit. Migraine aura symptoms. Now, this they put in the whole thing. All right, wonderful. What you see here is pain in the hands, pain in the chest, in the head. And this 
those of you that were here for the shark bites the other day, remember I showed you that abnormal, um, what is that? The uh, motor strip with the humunculus, okay? Why this is important is this. You see, paresthesias are pain, starting in the hand, going up the arm, gets up to here and jumps to the side of the mouth because the real humunculus, the mouth is right next to the thumb. Okay, and at the same time, this patient has fortification spectra, visual scotomas. There's another picture of migrinus aura. I had patients who tell me that the brightest, clearest colors that they've ever seen are in their auras. Now, Lewis Carroll, also known as Charles Dodson, okay, Lewis Carroll had migraine. And he had a very, very specific type of aura. His migraine was typically acephalgic. But he didn't know what to do about it, so he went to Dr. Bowman, okay, and where is that? All right. He had five episodes of fortification spectra, acephalgic, and then he had Alice in Wonderland syndrome, micropsia and macropsia. And this was called by Dr. Todd in the 50s. It can be called Todd syndrome or the Alice in Wonderland syndrome uh, can be experienced if you read the book, Alice in Wonderland. Remember, she drinks muscimol. So let's forget Todd. So this is what is so amazing about the Alice in Wonderland syndrome. It's not a pure, it is a pure visual aura, but it's more almost like a psychosis. And more interestingly, we're finding out now that this not only can be a migrainous type aura, it only lasts up to 10 minutes. It can occur as a sleep disorder. It is not uncommon to see it in patients as they're trying to fall asleep. So the correct term for micropsia, macropsia, is metamorphopsia. Okay, microsomatagnosia and macrosomatagnosia. And Dodgson, as I told you, had more acephalgic migraines. Children are felt to have more Alice in Wonderland uh, syndrome. And the question was, is this because they have a, quote, immature brain? The real fact of the matter is, if you look at the migrainous brain, it is felt that the migrainous brain is more active, it's more hyper, the neurons don't rest the way a non-migrainous patient does. So the question is, is this occurring because of changes in the neuronal activity of the brain? Okay. Now, it can be seen in children, as I said, mostly to start. Symptoms. Here's where you get into the psych. Patients with Alice in Wonderland seem to have derealization. Their perception of the external world is different. Depersonalization. Somatio-psychotic duality. What they see and what they feel are two entirely different things. OK? 
Okay. And then perceptual symptoms, I won't go through that. You can download that and read them because the words are even more syllabic than I'm used to using. But aside from micropsia, micropsia, you know, that stuff, levitation, changes in time perception, okay? The body schemata changes. And I'll read you three or four histories of folks. The metamorphopsias may be or may not be hallucinations. We'll see. Another definition, the visual misperception of real external stimuli. The brain is not able to interpret what it sees or experiences correctly. Here's the description of three attacks of three people with Alice in Wonderland syndrome. One is a seven-year-old boy, quote, scared and screaming, saying that his mind was running fast. He heard cheering sounds as if his room was full of baseball fans. The letters became smaller, and the book appeared to be a great distance away. He felt himself and his father growing smaller. That's not your typical aura, is it? 24-year-old woman. Ground comes up, and I go down, or vice versa, so that sometimes 12 feet. I feel that my head is divided in two. The second head seems to flow off of my normal head, and I feel that it is the detached head that contains my mind. So yes, that is almost psychotic functioning. 17-year-old boy. Quote, quite suddenly, everything seems strange. Usually I see objects small and distant or larger and close. I feel that I am now getting shorter and smaller, shrinking, and also the size of persons are not longer than my index finger. Again, this is not your mother's visual aura. So, like or unlike a typical aura, which is five minutes to 60, this is less than 10 minutes. That's a good thing. Treatment. This will interest you. Not a lot of writing about how to treat this migraine. Flunarazine in three children with recurrent events, no problem. Velproate. 1,000 milligrams a day in a patient with abdominal migraine and Alice in Wonderland syndrome. That's a child. Prophylactic response. However, here's a patient, 17-year-old girl who is given to pyramate. Okay, 75 milligrams a day. And it induced Alice in Wonderland syndrome. 17-year-old girl, after four months of treatment with topiramate, 75 milligrams a day, experienced nocturnal distortions of her body image. Quote, her head would grow bigger and the rest of the body would shrink or her hand would increase in size and become heavier while the remaining arm would become smaller. And when they took away the topiramate, that went away. Differential diagnosis, very interesting because it's not just migraine. Brain damage, brain injury, temporal lobe epilepsy. Pleocytosis in viral infection, or Handel syndrome. Handel syndrome is the syndrome of transient headache and neurological deficits with CSF lymphocytosis. Long story short, you've got to do an LP. Brain tumors can trigger Alice in Wonderland syndrome. Psychoactive drugs, LSD, mescaline, marijuana. Viral infections, Epstein-Barr 
okay? Coxsackie virus, H1N1, encephalitis. It's relatively co common in children versus adults. And some experts will tell you that Alice in Wonderland syndrome is a common occurrence in people falling asleep at sleep onset. It can be seen in schizophrenia. The nice thing is, if there is one of these primary diagnoses, if you get rid of it <clears throat> and cure it, or have the patient stop taking LSD, you can get rid of the Alice in Wonderland syndrome. Here is a picture of Alice Liddell, for whom Charles Dodgson wrote Alice in Wonderland. Dodgson actually told this story in, in 1862. He hand wrote it in 1864, and it was published in a book form in 1865. And then he followed it up, of course, with his second Alice in Wonderland book. This is Tennell's work. And you can see, again, the body perceptual changes. Macropsia. Again, macropsia. Now, this is interesting because Dodgson's family had a um, newsletter that they sent out three or four times a year. And Dodgson was asked to draw a picture on the cover of one of them. And what he did was he drew this picture. And what you see is a negative scotoma. He's missing part of his face, his shoulder, and his hand. This is essentially a negative scotoma that prevents him from drawing what he can't see. This is from the Lancet. Now, Vincent. Vincent van Gogh. Many of you have seen his, one of his greatest works, I think, Starry Nights. That was done while he was in the St. Remy Asylum in France, being treated for his migraine personality. I find that fascinating. <laughs> Pablo Picasso. Remember I showed you that picture of mosaic vision? What do you see here? Portrait of Ambrose Vallard. Or his most famous work, one of them, The Weeping Woman. So what you're seeing is how patients can incorporate their visual aura into their work. This man, Pablo Picasso, did have mosaic vision in his auras. George Sorot, he invented what? Pointillism. Okay, so you see very nice picture, pointillistically done. This is one of his most famous pointillistic pictures, the bridge at Corbovi. Very, very famous picture. Non-pointillistic. And here's my favorite. Homer and Marge. Okay. So this is a woman who writes and draws about migraine. Okay, so we're running out of time, so we'll go very quickly and just do the first pages of... Uh, how do you abort a migraine? Primarily, if it's not incapacitating, acetaminophen, 1,000 milligrams, ergots, DHE, intranasally, NSAIDs, opioids, 
Not an opioid, it's an agonist antagonist, butorphanol or statol. Triptans, all of them, and combinations, okay? And at the very bottom, I don't know why they expanded this, it says for, um, no, actually it doesn't. That's the next. We're going to go through here. And here's the evidence-based medicine for stopping or preventing migraine. Antiepileptic drugs, divalproic sodium, sodium valproate. Does anybody here want to use that on a typically a woman of childbearing age? No. It's got a black box warning that says, caution, birth defects waiting to happen. So we all fall back to topiramate. Okay. Beta blockers, propranolol, triptans for menstrually related migraine. The way to treat menstrual migraine is when you ask the, white, the woman, does she know when her migraine is? Is it the same time every month? And so on. If the answer is yes, then you start FROVA, 2.5 milligrams BID, five days before the menstrual migraine and throughout the menses. Or you can use naproxen sodium, 550 milligrams BID with food, starting five days before the menstrual migraine and through the menses. Over 80% of my patients, when I do that mini prophylaxis, will avoid getting their menstrual migraine. The problem is, if they get the menstrual migraine, trying to kill it with a triptan is almost impossible. So, otherwise, I'll just end by telling you that um, the three things that we used to do use for prophylactic treatment for headache were Depakote, beta blockers, and calcium channel blockers. And if you look at this evidence-based guideline, level U, inadequate or conflicting data to support or refute medication usage, that's where you find calcium channel blockers in this paper. So I'll go on to the very end where our friend, the world's most interesting man, says, I don't always have a migraine, but when I don't, I have a moderately painful headache. So, I will ask, are there any questions? Yes, sir. Oh, not at all. Not at all. And typically, your basic aura is not going to be made worse by uh, topiramate. The only problem with the pyramid is you also call it, you may know, Stupamax, because it can create cognitive problems for women. Medication withdrawal headaches, okay? What I do is um, I help them withdraw. Okay, and I do it outpatient, not inpatient. I use in, the, in, what has been published is the J-modified Raskin protocol, which is um, put in a buff cap at 8 in the morning. You give them um, metoclopramide, 10 milligrams, a half hour later, half a milligram of DHE45, half of hour later, the other second half if they don't get nauseated. And then eight more times, they get 10 of metoclopramide, a half hour later, one milligram of uh, DHE45. And I keep them coming into the clinic with psych and PT during that three-day period, at the end of which they're detoxed.
Any other questions? Okay. If not, I'll say thank you.